Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone. I was originally going to do a main episode on class in the 1840s, but I've decided to indulge myself and hopefully all of you. It has been far too long since we visited Victorian fashion, and if I'm honest, this episode is later than I really wanted or later than you all deserve. Let's redress the balance a bit. After all, we made sure the chaps knew how to look dashing last time, so it's time to see what was the latest in ladies' wear in the 1840s. Before we get started, I want to say some thank yous and some listener reviews. First up, a five-star review from Liz and Chekhov in Australia. Quote, Chris brings the intricacies of the era and the events that take place and pieces them together with the context needed to feel like you are there. Such a global and broad perspective, but it's the hone in on the important details that makes this podcast series unique and Chris's own humility, humanity and humour. Cannot recommend enough. End quote. Thank you. Really appreciate it. It has been, as I often say, eye-opening to learn about people's routines, their lives, and how great events somehow rippled across them. I think that's what we're going to see today. I've also had a review from Yar Wright from Turkey, five stars, and 32 thumbs-up emojis in the review box. I'm really glad you liked the show. Finally, I've had a five-star review from Darren in Italy, quote, Chris's podcast is one of the few I've found compelled to subscribe to. The time he spends on researching the topics is obvious. As an Australian who's lived in the UK for many years, I do appreciate the inclusion of Australia, New Zealand, and other parts of the empire, as it was. Personally, I admire the way Chris avoids tedious cliches, which is so very refreshing and also so important to understand the error and the locations involved, end quote. Thank you. Really appreciate that, Darren. Now, I know when it comes to women's wear, you are hoping for me to talk about corsets and the discomfort and patriarchal oppression. Well, there will be some of that, but there was a lot more to it. I'll remind you that whilst fashion is important, Victorian women often had very practical reasons for the way they dressed, besides the strict demands society put upon them. Please do remember, though, that society is organic and diffuse. There wasn't a boardroom full of men stroking their beards and deciding women would wear arsenic green dresses this year and keep their ankles covered. Clothing was highly class-dependent and hugely shaped by individual tastes, plus a phenomenon that we would come to recognise as the fashion industry. Much of this was driven by the women themselves. There's a wonderful quote from Sarah on this Victorian Life website about the importance of dressing. It is from an 1866 book on manners, but just nails how the Victorians felt about clothes for the whole period. Quote, Dress, then, is something more than necessity of climate something better than condition of comfort, something higher than elegance of civilization. Dress is the index, conscience, the evidence of our emotional nature. It reveals 
more clearly than speech expresses the inner life of heart and soul in a people, and also the tendencies of individual character, end quote. That really nails the heart of it. Dress is the index of conscience. You could not find a more perfect encapsulation of the Victorian philosophy. As I've said before, the Victorians didn't consider dressing down to be a good thing. For a Victorian, the point was to wear the best clothes you could get away with so that people treated you better. Being commonly dressed, or dressing like the everyday person, was not what the Victorian society valued. Instead of dressed down Fridays, or judging people by what was on the inside, Victorians absolutely what people wore and gave them respect or attitude accordingly. If someone wasn't self-disciplined enough to dress well and take pride in their appearance, the thinking went that they clearly wouldn't have the self-discipline when it came to either work or personal morality. Obviously, the aristocracy was an exception. If Queen Victoria consistently refused to dress in the highest fashion and finery of European royalty, she was queen. If she wanted to walk round Belmont, looking bedraggled, and on one occasion mistaken for a commoner, well, that was just royalty. What larks? In many ways, Victoria erred towards what was practical. We have at least one pair of boots of hers that are a size four and a half, but very narrow, and are an ancestor to the modern Chelsea boot. So if you brought her forward in time, in her famous black dresses and her black Chelsea style boots and persuaded her to wear eyeliner and some makeup, she would probably pass for a goth. That makes sense when you consider how much of gothic fashion is Victorian fashion in modern materials and cuts. However, she didn't spend her entire life in mourning, but even when she did, there was still the complex range of clothing choices she had to make. I'm mentioning this so that you remember that clothes are often very context-dependent. It's the same with so many clothes. Top hats were commonly worn by men across classes. They were frequently battered and tatty, not shiny Hollywood 1920s style. Women did wear sparkling dresses and jewellery sometimes, but it was very dependent on where they were and what they were doing. Hollywood might give you the impression that all Victorian women either wore fabulous dresses or rags, but there were a vast range of options in between. Even the grandest duchess didn't wear a pure silk dress, dripping with jewellery to morning tea. Dress also varied by time of day and season. When we talk about Victorian women's clothing, we also need to remember how much was handmade and extremely well stitched. Most Victorian women learnt to sew to a higher standard than any modern person. Some Victorian dress and sewing patterns are so intricate that it is doubtful they could be replicated today without machine assistance. Now, since I know you've all been dying for me to cover it, let's start off with underwear, corsets. A woman would wake up in the morning, probably in a freezing room, and decide what the day ahead held. For most of the population of the United Kingdom, the answer was, of course, hours of hard work and the desperate hope that there would be food and possibly survival to do it all again the next day. 
For the working class woman, she would probably have had to stoke the fire and make tea for her husband well before dawn so he could get off to work. That might sound like the easy life for him, but since his work would probably involve a long walk and then a potentially 12 to 14 hour shift, perhaps in a mine or on the docks, you can see why making sure he had tea and perhaps toast was a priority over getting washed and dressed. The woman would then wash in a basin, hopefully with warm water. The basic piece of women's clothing was the armless cotton chemise. This was shorter than the nightdress and less heavy, usually with a low plunging neckline. The woman would wash herself whilst wearing it, then put on her drawers, which were becoming more and more popular during the Victorian era. Remember, panties as we understand them didn't exist. Women wore bloomers that laced at the top, but were also crotchless. They were in some ways very practical, since they allowed a woman to easily relieve herself or to put sanitary napkins in place. Since most women were covered from head to toe, open underwear didn't cause problems until the Victorian fashion for skirts that were kept away from the body came into vogue, giving more of a chance for an unexpected glimpse in the wrong weather conditions, especially on stairs. Bloomers, therefore, became more and more acceptable, despite what was considered the serious objection of them being popular in France. Their length varied, with some fastening below the knee, others higher up. Most were plain and frequently patched to make them last longer, since the working-class woman spent a great deal of time on her knees, both the bloomers or the stockings tended to wear at that point. A bonus was that they were mass-produced rather than homemade. Obviously, for Queen Victoria, they were more handmade and had more intricate lace. She never adopted the fully enclosed, gapless drawers that became more common in the 1890s. With her bloomers, chemise and corset in place, the woman could now select her stockings for the day, with various options for length. Elasticated options were obviously not available, so the choice was either Indian rubber or lace, or just tie them at the top with string. Sagging could be a problem, apparently much to the delight of some gentlemen who enjoyed the subsequent display of a woman in complex clothes suddenly having an impromptu rummage. Most stockings were either white or black, but in the 1850s, bright colours with spots, checks, stripes or tartans were all the rage. They were typically made of wool for reasons of price, comfort, breathability, hardiness and excellent insulation properties. I'll pause to remind you that London is on the same latitude as Vancouver, Montreal, Quebec City and Toronto. The UK lies in the same line as Canada and Alaska. It is only really as warm as it is because of the position of its coastline to Europe and the prevailing Atlantic currents. But in Victorian times, it was on average a lot colder than it is today, especially as man-made global warming hadn't really started. So warm underwear indoors was essential. Bear in mind that houses didn't have central heating. Most would be single, thin brick walls with 
single paned glass windows or just shutters. So being indoors, there's no guarantee of warmth. With the warm base layer in place, the woman could put on the item I know we've all been dying to talk about. The corset. Ah yes, often called an instrument of patriarchal oppression or a danger to women being able to breathe or even close to an instrument of torture which was as bad as foot binding. As I always say, the reality was somewhat different. Clothing historian Hilary Davidson has said in an article in the Smithsonian magazine, quote, the myth that women walked around in these uncomfortable things that they couldn't take off because patriarchy truly wrangled, and they put up with it for 400 years. Women are not that stupid, she says, end quote. She goes on to say, quote, we all make individual choices about how much we modify ourselves and our body to fit within the social groups in which we live, end quote. Valerie Steele, curator of the Museum for the Fashion Institute of Technology, has said, quote, by patronising the women of the past as passive victims of fashion, historians have ignored the reasons why so many women were willing to wear corsets for so long. Fashion cannot logically be rarefied as a magic power that causes women to behave in ways contrary to their own best interests, end quote. That's how you need to start thinking of people dressing in the past and ask yourself more about what was available to the individual within their circumstances to truly understand things. For a start, men got next to zero say in what women wore in the Victorian era. Women's fashion was determined by women and women's underwear was often deemed unmentionable. Men did not get to see women's underwear unless they were making it or married to someone wearing it or paying a sex worker or, in an extremely unlikely event, washing it. Models didn't display it in shop windows and magazines didn't have glossy colour photos of it. The underwear model was a 20th century phenomenon, not a Victorian one. Today, we might consider a corset sexy and picture Victorian women as wearing it on the outside to make themselves look especially hot, especially if they were prostitutes. But corsets were underwear, very much standard underwear. By definition, underwear basically stays underneath. When you watch TV today and see undeniably gorgeous actresses in corsets, you are seeing a fantasy, probably a male one. We are giving it a modern context and meaning that it didn't necessarily have at the time. The question then is why were women wearing corsets and how did they get to be so associated with the Victorians? Corsets absolutely weren't a Victorian invention. They had existed for centuries in some forms. Nearly every woman wore a corset or a petticoat with stays from childhood. These were garments that were supposed to provide support to women's breasts and give them shape, much like a push-up bra or sports bra. I want to emphasise that you need to be careful looking at museum examples of corsets, which often over-tighten them on displays, or when actresses tell you they are uncomfortable, as those are often off-the-shelf corsets, and like a lot of stage clothes, they don't fit well 
or get used properly. Victorian corsets were often worn with curving out materials around the hips or to go with hooped out dresses. These carefully added to the illusion of an ultra slim waist. A modern viewer might look a Victorian woman in a dress and think her small waist is being caused by an overtight corset, not realising that the woman in question has padded out her hips and had her bust pushed up with wider dress shoulders and was naturally smaller than most modern women, giving the effect of an impossibly narrow waist. In addition, many Victorian photographers kindly narrowed a woman's waist to give it that Photoshop finish. Hollywood has also not helped. Famously, Elizabeth Swan in the first Pirates of the Caribbean film is given her first corset by her father. Her maid then tightens it so hard that Elizabeth can barely breathe. That film is actually set in the 1720s to 1780s era, so earlier than the Victorian period. It is also absurd that she wouldn't have been wearing something similar since childhood and the tight lacing was beyond ridiculous, especially as metal eyelets hadn't been invented at this point. See also Scarlet O'Hara in Gone with the Wind and countless others. It is also crucial to remember the Victorian women were on average smaller than modern women, but not so small that some tight waist sizes weren't clearly problematic. Even back in the 1950s, the average waist size of a woman in the UK was 28 inches. It is now an average of 34 inches. It isn't just waist size that has gone up. Modern women have bigger feet and bigger breasts on average. Don't forget the Victorians didn't use standard body sizing for clothes. Individual measurements were far more important. When you hear a Victorian schoolgirl had a 24-inch waist, don't automatically assume it was due to tight lacing corsets. It would also have been because she ate a lot less than us and did a lot more exercise. Even at rest, she would be burning more calories than you just to keep warm. The actual purpose of the corset was supposed to be to provide the support to what the Victorians thought of as a woman's weaker stomach and back muscles, to provide support for the breasts, to mildly tighten the waist to help with a more hourglass figure, to provide a layer of insulation, and most important of all, to keep people from slouching. That's right, sit up straight now at the back. Men's clothes at the top were also deliberately restrictive, as sitting or standing upright was considered the most important thing, both from a health point of view and also to demonstrate moral decency and avoid being slovenly. Comfort was not the consideration. Early corsets of the Victorian era were mostly handmade with four cotton panels, some loose boning to prevent lacing getting rocked up, and a single stiffener at the front, inserted once it was on, just before lacing it at the back. Some historians and reenactors have noticed that this thin style corset was often more comfortable than an underwired bra since the weight is more evenly spread and there's no tightness in single bands. As with all real underwear, the wearer would size it for themselves. It was certainly not part of a dress and 
was sometimes worn with a fashion cover. Corsets did change a woman's shape and muscle tone, even when not over-tightened, but probably no more than modern shaping underwear. The result was a narrower upper body and waist, so breathing was more focused on the upper chest and airway. Some doctors recommended singing as a good exercise to improve these chest muscles. A properly fitted corset was not supposed to take more than an inch or two off the waist and is not supposed to be so tight as to narrow the rib cage in the short or long term. They did keep the upper body supported and upright, helping with the habitual hard work and lifting of Victorian women did for the day. Corsets were worn by everyone, from maids to opera singers, women rode horses and later bikes in them. They nursed in them on the front line and climbed mountains in them. If they were as ridiculously tight and restrictive as Hollywood or TV claims, those activities would have been impossible. Only by the 1850s and 1860s did tighter lacing become really practical and then waist size reduction became a real problem. Girls would wear corsets from a very young age and tight lacing became a fad for silly teenagers and 20-somethings. Some schoolgirls held competitions for who had the smallest waist and the most tightly laced corset. The older, comfortable and supportive loose panel corsets began to be replaced with mass-produced ones that could allow tighter lacing. The medical establishment was almost unanimous in condemning tight lacing. It was considered an extremist practice and was highly damaging. Tight laced corsets really do narrow and compress the rib cage. In 1890, the Lancet Medical Journal was unequivocal, stating, quote, The veriest novice in anatomy understands how this practice, almost every important organ is subjected to cramping pressure, its functions interfered with, and its relations to other structures so altered as to render it, even if it were itself competent, a positive source of danger to them. End quote. Victorian women, though, seemed to dislike doctors involving themselves in this area. Victorian women who really wanted that hourglass shape might start over-tightening. This in turn narrowed the waist, compressed the ribs, and meant the corset had to be tightened more to provide the same grip over time. It became a vicious circle. I want to emphasise that this was considered extreme. Much in the same way in the fitness field, someone who becomes vegan goes to the gym daily, does a daily juice cleanse, a daily detox, and intermittent fasting, as well as long-distance runs, is at the statistically uncommon end of the modern fitness industry. Besides, what does tight lacing really mean? A woman with a natural waist of 28 inches, not uncommon at the time, who reduced it to 24, would look almost wasp-waisted today. Evidence over tightening lacing and the harms it causes is bitterly contested by doctors and historians. Yet that 26-inch wasted girl was only really taking down two inches. According to the Guinness Book of Records, quote, the smallest waist belongs to Kathy Young, 
born 1937 in the USA, who stands at 1.7 metres, 5 foot 8 inches, and has a corseted waist measuring 38.1 centimetres, that's 15 inches. Uncorseted, it measures 53.34 centimetres, 21 inches. Her enthusiasm for Victorian clothes is why at the age of 38, she started wearing a 15 centimetre, 6 inch training belt to gradually reduce her then 26 inch waist. She has never had surgery to define her waist. Since 1983, she has worn a corset 23 hours a day, only removing it for her daily shower, end quote. Claims that women might have had a rib removed to fit into a corset to get a wasp waist are pure urban myths. Even assuming a woman could find a doctor unethical enough to perform a vanity operation, the medical technology simply wasn't advanced enough for that surgery. Photographic evidence is unreliable, as we know Victorian photographers retouched photos without any qualms, as you will remember from my episode on photography. Pioneering x-rays in 1908 certainly did show tight lacing causing deformity of the rib cage, but these are not entirely without problems as evidence of common corset damage. They showed compression of the false ribs at the bottom, as there is the problem that a lot of the compression depends heavily on the style of corset being worn and the muscle tone of the individual. A study of skeletal deformity held recently seemed to indicate that there were serious compression effects on female skeletons' ribs, but equally, both rickets and tuberculosis can cause similar problems and those were incredibly common conditions. Tests with reenactors are too short to test rib cage compression properly. Reenactors were also given airflow tests, which did show the lungs were being less efficient in corsets, but since they were not lifelong corset wearers, it is hard to know how a well-adapted corset wearer would have coped under the study. Some men enthusiastically supported tight lacing, though. One man wrote a letter to the English Woman's Domestic Magazine, quote, I have always been an admirer of small waists and thought most of those ladies who practiced tight lacing. I may say also, I have worn stays myself made after the model of those worn by ladies, and that when I did so, I carried the practice of tight lacing to the extreme, and found the greatest pleasure in doing so, and that I should never have given up, but that I was persuaded to do so by my wife, end quote. According to Tanya Kirk, lead curator at the Printed Heritage Collections at the British Library, that letter opened a floodgate of letters, from men asking how they could buy corsets. One such letter writer, using the pseudonym Walter, said in November 1867, quote, I was sent early to school in Austria, where lacing is not considered ridiculous in a gentleman, and I objected in a thoroughly English way, when the doctor's wife required me to be laced. A sturdy mansion was stoically deaf to my remonstrances and speedily laced me up Tightly, the daily lacing tighter and tighter produced inconvenience and absolute pain. In a few months, however, I was anxious to 
who have my corsets laced as tightly as a pair of strong arms could draw them, end quote. That sort of puts paid to the if-men-had-to-do-it argument. Was he just seeking a classic V-torso, like so many men? Or perhaps he was not comfortable in his gender? Or just enjoyed a form of BDSM? Or maybe he had control issues? Perhaps it says more about our need to categorise people and keep certain clothing styles delineated by gender than it says about his decision to wear a corset. Perhaps it also begs the question of how many other Victorian manly men wore shaping underwear. Male body insecurity has a long and often unacknowledged history. Humans of all genders have often secretly wanted to reshape themselves. Despite their views on tight lacing, doctors were more than happy to endorse corsets, at least according to a huge number of overblown adverts. One company ran an advert in the English Woman's Domestic Magazine. They boasted that their corsets were front-fastening, suitable for every figure, and a judicious mix of firmness and elasticity. Above all, they boasted, quote, the enlarged prospectus with illustrations, anatomical and descriptive, details of prices, explicator directions, and papers for self-measurement, together with the opinions of Sir James Clark, the Queen's physician, Dr. J.D. Forbes, physician to Her Majesty's household, Sir B.C. Brodie on the influence of stays and corsets upon the health of women, all elegantly printed in 32 pages. Quote. As a minor aside, I tried to look up some information on Brodie, but the Lancet from 1848 is behind a paywall. Seriously, why isn't there an international library of knowledge? where all articles are digitised and free to access for all humanity. I am fed up with paywalls on articles that are nearly 200 years old and can't contact the author without a seance. I digress. As you can imagine, corset adverts were full of amazing claims. Everything was patented, world-leading, highly recommended by experts, handmade to the highest standards, whilst cheap enough for all. By the 1890s, there was even the shockingly amazing Dr. Scott's electric corset, which prevented headaches, backaches, constipation, rheumatism, the digestive functions, and everything. Perfect for ladies in a waist size of 18 to 30 inches who wanted a really shocking experience. That was a long way in the future. In the 1840s, the corset was much plainer, more similar to the softer styles of the 1810s and 1820s, predominantly cotton, with the beginnings of the later waist shaping and mostly plain. Hints of lace began to appear, especially for the wealthy. Occasionally, the back lacing included metal grommets. Hip and breast gussets appeared to allow more outward flex. In this form, the 1840s corset was practical, supportive, and no more restrictive than a well-fitted bra or sports top. It was also far thinner than a modern corset. As long as it wasn't tightly laced, it didn't do any damage to the ribs, or cause fainting, or unnaturally constrict the waist. Once she was secure in her chemise, bloomers and corset, the woman now had to make a decision. What came next? 
the dress of the day, and it absolutely would be a dress or a skirt and top combo. As always, clothes depended heavily on budget. When we talk about Victorian clothes, people instinctively talk about the elaborate dress of the middle class or the rich. Most of the population, though, was poor. And for many women, one of the great attractions of being a maid was having clothes and beds provided. For some dresses, the corset could be built into the bodice, especially in the 1840s. If you thought the corset was complicated, dresses were even more varied in styles than today. Many were low-cut, so some chemises were ruffled and laced at the top to allow them to pop over the shoulder and top of the dress as a form of undershirt. Sleeves tended to be tight at the shoulders and at the wrists, but loose at the elbows, perhaps with decorative ruffles. Dresses began to show hints of the Gothic Revival style that was becoming popular in architecture. Points appeared at the bottom of the bodice, with waistlines curving and dipping. Most women would wear a bonnet or some form of headwear. These would have had an oval shape and usually decorated with flowers and ribbons. They were designed to be striking and a plain white cap would have been seen as for the very poor. As the 1840s went on, necklines became higher, skirts began to flare out and necks got more coverage. As the skirts flared, extra padding began to be introduced, including multiple petticoats, hinting at the later metal-hooped crinolines. Colours were often muted or pastel, sometimes with ribbons or buttons, as well as pleats to make the dress decorative. Greens, blues, greys and mauve were all popular in the 1840s. Dyes still had to be natural, since chemical dyes weren't invented until the 1850s, so colour was expensive. If weather and budget permitted, a silk scarf was a great accessory. And some day dresses even had silk in the materials. The majority would be cotton or wool mixes. Wool was a cut above cotton, of course. Creating a dress required skill. Victorian needlework was probably higher quality than anything you'll find today. Sewing was broken into what was called plain and fancy. Plain was the everyday basic taught from childhood and would go from basic sewing and repairs up to making an entire dress from scratch, perhaps with patterns from magazines. Fancy was the art of decoration, including intricate lace, ribbons, hoops, embroidery and crochet. A maid would be expected to have mastered plain needlework as a prerequisite for employment. So if any of you lady listeners have wondered what you would do for work if you accidentally time-travelled to Victorian London and had to survive, you would probably not be skilled enough to be a maid or a servant. Girls practiced from an extremely young age, and patterns for seven-year-olds were frequently well beyond the skill level anyone today has without using machine assistance. Even when the sewing machine was invented, it was seen as an aid for doing long straight stitches, whilst intricate work remained with the seamstress. It was a vital skill. Most women would have to buy clothes second-hand and adjust them to fit or make them from scratch. Paying a dressmaker was expensive 
and fabrics were typically bought separately. Harper's Bazaar extolled the virtues of being able to sew well. Quote, We have met cases where the frivolity of fancy work has been turned to excellent profit, where young ladies who had learned its arts in their idle moments practised it to provide themselves with the wardrobe that their restricted purses could never buy. End quote. For the rich, of course, even a day dress would be striking. I've seen one illustration, for instance, with a woman wearing a huge white dress with green layers, lacy overflows, a narrow waist, skirt blossoming out, and a green silk waist tie. Her corset is clearly shaping her, but the effect is exaggerated by an overwrap of the dress, allowing a V-cut at the neck, which is filmed with a red cross on a neck choker of red beads, accentuating her cleavage. She has her hair up in a pulled-back bun underneath a Spanish cavalier-style black hat with white plumes. She looks gorgeous and exotic. She's talking to her friend as they walk the dog by a river in front of the castle. I can guarantee that to have an equivalent dress today would mean paying tens of thousands of pounds. In 1888, Castle's Household Guide recommended a family of four with a household income of £500 a year should be spending around £62 a year on clothes for everyone. The day dresses of the aristocracy could exceed that for the cost of the materials alone for just a single dress. However she got her dress, the Victorian woman was now ready to either entertain callers, meet neighbours, force herself to spend time with her family, or give orders to the servants, or take a ride in a carriage if she was rich enough. Staying in meant the lady might only wear an indoor cap or a light bonnet, till these started to fall out of fashion to be replaced by hats in the 1860s. Etiquette was very strict that a lady calling on someone for a visit did not remove any clothing, including the bonnet. The only exception was if the lady was visiting an extremely close friend and the friend asked her if she would like to remove it. This is hardly uniquely Victorian. Dress codes exist across many cultures. Consider the rules of etiquette around head coverings in Islam or in many other cultures, which are similarly taken extremely seriously by adherents. If she was going out and the weather was less than perfect, capes, mantles, or an overcoat of various styles, which were grouped under the name Pardesus, were all popular choices. With a stiff bonnet, scarf, and Pardesus over those multiple layers, a Victorian woman was well protected against the cold, wet British climate. One of the biggest problems was shoes. Since women were supposed to be dainty, their footwear was also supposed to be dainty. Indoor slip-on shoes, similar to modern ballet shoes, were popular, while shoes were used outdoors, only in the best weather, with boots being the more common choice. Whether in or out, in general, women's feet weren't meant to be viewed, and the dress was almost certainly floor-length. Riding outfits were a very different speciality. They were elaborate, and a woman would not use her everyday dress. 
to go riding. Women rode side saddle, but were just as exposed to weather as male riders, so long stiff dresses with underlayers were essential. Women riding in the 1840s frequently wore top hats like men, and also wore men's long-style trouser pants under the dresses, sometimes buttoned to the boots. Remember that in the 1840s, trains were far less available, so riding was a very common way to travel, unless you paid for a coach or a carriage. Having sensible riding clothes was a good investment for a middle-class lady in the countryside. Calfskin gloves and broad-brimmed hats were also popular, eventually morphing into the cavalier style with elaborate plumes. Other ladies favoured tight-cut riding jackets with bright dresses and jaunty hats. Like all Victorian clothing, riding outfits were matched to the occasion, especially for the rich. A lady on the great estates would probably wear her favourite comfy skirts, jackets, gloves and hats. Colours were personal preference and everyday riding outfits were worn hard. For a formal event, like a fox hunt, the lady had to wear whatever the hunt's master specified as the dress code. In town, no lady would wear her leather hacking around gloves with a mismatched jacket and skirt. Like a gentleman, she would wear a formal suit with calfskin gloves. These kind of dress codes were a good way for the established rich to identify and put down the middle classes or snub the newly rich. If a woman's husband made his fortune in manufacturing, she didn't have the instinctive knowledge of these kinds of social customs. She might attend a ride dressed in the best she could afford, only to be mocked for wearing leather gloves and a jacket with the wrong cut. As the middle classes expanded and horse riding came within reach of more people, anxious middle class men and women looked to etiquette books to help them fit in. That's nearly the end. I could spend days covering women's clothes. There was an infinite variety, but we should really talk about crucial outfit before we finish. The evening dress. Like Victorian men, richer women would change their clothes for the evening, especially if they were going out. The evening dress was designed to look stunning. The 1840s dress should ideally have been silk, with a bodice worn off the shoulder. Shoulders were bare and cleavage could be hinted at with ample chest space, hopefully devoted to jewels and pearls. Since these were strapless, it is tempting to think slippage was a risk, but the corset and rigid bodice meant that the shoulder and chest fabrics couldn't slip anywhere. Sleeves were short too, and often draped with elaborate lace or other decorations like pearls. The bodice should taper to a sharp point at the waist, with a bell-like skirt, ruffles, pleats, lace dripping and other finery made the dress a work of art. Yet it remained light and easy to wear. Slits, layers and fresh flowers could add to the effect. Colours were often either muted or dazzling, with the daring going for two tones with layers of colours or accents. These were the kind of dresses that make you think of princesses in oil paintings, of European aristocracy going to the very top of the wealthy tree. You can see the stunning blue and white dresses of Maria Adelaide of Austria 
who married Prince Victor Emmanuel of Savoy, eventually becoming Queen Consort of Sardinia, Archduchess of Austria, and Princess of Hungary and Bohemia. Google her and have a look at that blue dress. That's Maria Adelaide, or the elegant white of Grand Duchess Elizabeth Mikhailovna in the portrait by Voldemar Hugh. Most famously, you could Google the Empress Eugene with her ladies-in-waiting by Franz Winterhotzer, which includes the Empress Eugenie de Montijo, the Baroness de Pierre, Princess Essling, Vine Countess de Lazy Marnissia, the Marquise de Montebello, the Duchess of Bassano, Baroness Marillette, and the Marquise de Las Maris. And yes, I know I have butchered a pronunciation of a good number of those. My apologies. Certainly, most Victorian women would never lay eyes on dresses like these. But stories of beautiful European royalty appeared in many magazines. Depending on your point of view, it either meant you appreciated the finery of your betters and accepted your place in the world, or alternatively, perhaps decided those chaps, Engels and Marx, might be onto something. I wonder if those names will pop up again. Since we've just brushed up against political agitation, I want you to remember that in the 1840s, clothing was not really seen as what we would call a feminist issue. Women who were campaigning or pressing for increased rights were focused on property rights, political representation, access to education, and the right to enter the professions, own property, or choose their own work. The idea of clothes as a political statement simply wasn't part of the early Victorian consciousness in any way. Telling a woman to burn her corset for freedom would not have made any sense. Supporting her in getting the right to go to medical school would have been seen as the radical political statement of the day. That meant, whilst women's clothes were judged for class acceptability, they didn't get looked at yet in terms of being political statements. That would change as women forced their way into more public spaces and new activities demanded new clothes. That's something we will look at in later shows. I hope you've enjoyed this gallop through women's clothing in the 1840s. There's so much more I could say, but at least now you have an idea of how women dressed and why. Once again, I'm sincerely sorry that this show was running later in the month than I wanted, and I hope you've enjoyed it, and I will look forward to seeing you next time. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com follow me on twitter at ageofvictoria visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com the show also has a facebook page and a group just search for age of victoria don't forget to leave a review on apple podcasts takes less time than making a coffee if you want to support the show on patreon there's a link in the show notes or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.